to the second episode of Let's Be Frank. I'm your host, Frank Severich, and frankly, I am quite excited to have you here. We have a great show for you today, our second episode ever. Now, if you've just listened to the first episode, you probably heard me say that I'll be releasing an episode each week, and well, looking at the timestamp, it's been a little more than a week, but uh, hey, absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? As you know, on the show, I'll be talking with friends, family, experts about news, policy, sports, culture, and whatever else I find interesting. I am figuring this thing out as I go, and after you listen to this episode, I'd love to hear your feedback on what you like. You can email me at any time at letsbefrankalways, all one word, at gmail.com. Now, on to the show! Today's episode is titled A Love Letter to D.C. I am from the D.C. area, and I've lived in D.C. for the past decade. D.C. is my home. In 2011, 10 years ago, I began an AmeriCorps program in D.C. called City Year. It was a year of service at a local elementary school. I worked in a kindergarten classroom. It was one of the most challenging and uh, also one of the best years of my life. As a part of training for City Year, the leadership uh, for the program brought in a lecturer whose name I cannot seem to find. I am sorry, I tried, and if I find it, I will add it to the show notes. And uh, this guy was a local pastor who had lived in D.C. all his life. He talked about the city as a tale of two cities, and it really stuck with me. See, when most people think of Washington, D.C., they think about the federal government, the Smithsonian, Congress, the White House, but there are hundreds of thousands of people who live in the city that have no relationship to the federal government, or maybe they are the people who silently work in the background, upholding our institutions. The Capitol and the White House... That is Washington. Washington has one of the highest medium incomes in the country, one of the highest rates of postgraduate degrees, but then there is DC. DC is the city that exists around Washington. DC is the 930 Club, Ben's Chili Bowl, the waterfront, go-go music. DC is also a place with extreme inequality. Take, for example, Ward 1, an area that encompasses some of the most affluent parts of the city. In Ward 1, unemployment is 5.5%, poverty is 12.2%, but in Ward 7 and 8, the historically black part of the city, the east of the river community, unemployment is more than double what it is in Ward 1. Unemployment in Ward 7 is 12.8%, and in Ward 8, it is 16.7%. The poverty rate is more than double as well. The poverty rate in Ward 7 is 26.3%, and in Ward 8, it is 32.9%. 46% of the district's population is black, and 92% of the population in wards 7 and 8 are black. D.C. is the nation's capital, and it also reflects the extreme inequality endured throughout the country. There is no one else in the world that I would rather talk all things D.C. with than Matt Spiracino. Matt and I have been friends since college, and we have a shared passion for all things D.C. He recently finished reading a book about the history of D.C., and so I wanted to bring him in to talk with me about the city that we love. Here is the episode, and I hope you enjoy the show. Matt Spiracino, welcome to the show. 
Hi, Frank. It's really good to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, I hear congratulations are in order. You and your uh, uh, wonderful wife just uh, made a new home in D.C. We did. Yes. Yeah. So, well, so I've, I've lived in D.C. since uh, I guess since 2010 when we actually lived together mm-hmm. in uh, Friendship Heights in Northwest. But we recently just bought a home. Um, so we've kind of been jumping around D.C. But, yeah, we've just settled at a new home in Berry Farm. Nice. That's great. And uh, tell us a little bit about Berry Farm for those of us who have not been there before. So Berry Farm is a neighborhood very close to Anacostia. Um, Anacostia is just across the river from Navy Yard, where the where the Nationals ballpark is. Um, Berry Farm itself is a neighborhood that I was not very familiar with until we started looking at houses. Um, but it's a neighborhood that has a lot of history. It's uh really the history goes way to the civil war it was actually land that was purchased by the freedmen's bureau post-civil war and was uh, created as a neighborhood for recently freed slaves to settle so uh some of the other other notable things there's a a big rec basketball tournament every summer called the goodman's league that's one of the things it's probably most known for um, I think it's been going on since the seventies. It's like, uh, just like a big get together with sometimes professional players, sometimes college. I've never, I've never been before, but I'm really hoping to go maybe this summer or next. Are you going to um, play? But yeah, it's got to, uh, you know, I've been playing pickup a little bit lately, but okay. I don't think I'm quite, I don't think I'm quite at that level yet. Um, <laughs> and then a, a couple other interesting things. There's a, uh, Frederick Douglass actually lived in this area for a while wow. when he was a resident in D.C. Um, there's actually uh, his I haven't been there yet because it's closed, but his old home is like a historic site here. And that's uh, maybe like a 15 minute walk from where we live now. So a lot of history, a lot of history here. That's very cool. Well, congratulations. Um, how does it feel to pay a mortgage? Is it a rush um, every time? You know, I'll let you know uh, a week from now when you're doing your next show, because I'm sure that'll be in a week because oh, yeah. our first oh, yeah. our first mortgage payment is actually not until April 1st, which oh, nice. uh, okay. was very exciting because we we closed on this house the first week of February. So it kind of feels like we got like a like a free month or two, you uh-huh. know, in the deal. Um, Were so they yeah, running a I, promo? Like, you know, they must've been, yeah, one it house, was get BOGO. One <laughs> we keep, we keep joking whenever we find something in the house we don't like, but we always say like, well, we kept the receipt so we can always return it if we need to. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I'll let you know about the mortgage rush in about a week or so when I, when I send the first check. Yeah, well, um, you know the the show's email address, so yeah, feel free to hit us up. Um, so yeah, you just read a um, uh, a book about all things DC. I have not read said book. I'm very interested in reading said book, and so I want to learn more about it from you uh, today, and, and maybe we can do a, a follow-up after this. But it is called Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital by... 
Chris Myers Ash and George Derek Musgrove. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you've been working on this book for a little while now. It's a it's a dense book, from what I understand. It's a five hundred pager. It is. This is, this is I, like Harry Potter five territory that we're in right now. Well, it's not quite that bad. It's I think that was you know what you know what was like Harry Potter five was um, Obama's book. The, oh yeah, his, yeah, yeah. His, that's a big one. I don't know if you've gotten to that yet, but that was a big boy. <laughs> um, but no, this is uh, Chocolate City. It, it was it was a journey for me to get through this book. I actually started it last summer in June. Um, and I read maybe the first 100, 150 pages. And for whatever reason, I, I put it down at some point. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> this is probably not going to sound like a great endorsement, but it is very dense and it it feels a little bit like a history book because it is, but like way more interesting than any history book I've ever actually read. Like. I don't know. I feel like that kind of undersells it and makes it sound like it's kind of like academic and boring, but it actually has like a lot of color and a lot of like really interesting anecdotes and stories about the city. But anyways, for whatever reason, last summer, I I just needed something a little lighter, something, something different. So I put it away for maybe six months or so, Picked you know, with Harry the intention of five, you know. yeah, just breeze through that. Um, <laughs> But anyways, when we, we, so we moved about six weeks ago, it was early in February and all of my books were packed up. Um, you know, we moved into the house and they stayed in boxes for the first couple of weeks we were here. And it was, it was really bugging me because I had just finished, um, I'd finished Obama's book. I was reading that before we moved. And I wanted like a a new book to read, but all of my books were, you know, were packed away. So one day I just decided like, you know, I'm going to go digging through these boxes and and find something. I was actually looking for a different book. I was looking for a a biography, but I guess that was just deeper into the box because Chocolate City was one of the first books I came across. And I was like, this is perfect. Like I've just moved into this new neighborhood. I'm kind of you know, when we bought our home, we were sort of debating, like, do we want to stay in DC? Do we want to go somewhere else? So it just seemed like a good time to kind of like, excuse me, to kind of like reconnect to my love for the city and and to learn more about the city as we had kind of made the decision to like uh, plant some deeper roots here. So I, I fished it out and I, I read through the rest of it in the next couple of weeks and I mean, like I said, it's dense, but it's, uh, and it, for me, at least, like, I, I love DC and this, the history of the city is really interesting to me. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's an easy read because it's not an easy read, but it, it was just so interesting. Like, yeah. and the more, the more like modern things became like, cause you know, it progresses through history. So the closer we got to the present day, the more and more interesting it became like, you know, the, the Marion Barry era, which is a pretty significant chunk of the book. That was really interesting because growing up, that's, you know, like a, a personality and a name that I was familiar with, but as a kid, I didn't, 
really know what was going on with DC politics. So learning more about that and the civil rights era, the, the riots following MLK's assassination, all of that stuff was, was particularly interesting to me. Well, and we should, we should get into it, but quickly on Marion Barry, you and I both worked at a uh, restaurant in downtown DC, a fancy restaurant in downtown DC that is close to uh, the DC government building. And Mm -hmm. uh, you and I have both served uh, Marion Barry and uh, without going too deep into it, what Matt, what, what was Marion Barry's favorite drink? Uh, It was the one and only mango margarita, baby. And (laughs) he loved them. You you better have that. You better have that mango puree handy because he does not (laughs) want a regular margarita. He didn't want a strawberry margarita. He wanted the mango. That's right. Uh, That's right. Yeah, we we both had the the pleasure of of waiting on the mayor for life many a time. He was a frequent. frequent customer at the accidental and hopefully he's out there somewhere sipping mango margaritas right now i'm Uh, sure he is i'm sure he is okay so maybe maybe the best way to do this uh to talk through it uh to talk through this book um because i know that there there are are things that we definitely want to cover but maybe there's a good uh maybe we should just follow you know like let's just go through uh, history, different different historical eras. So we got, you know, we we uh, founding of the country. We're uh, we're in um, uh, uh, colonial times, and at, at least as far as I know, and you're you're the the authoritative source here. The um, DC was carved out of. Uh, Maryland and Virginia. It was carved out to be basically like a neutral playing ground for federal politics. They wanted something, you know, split between North and South. It wasn't supposed to, and this is sort of the original sin of, uh, of, of the founding of DC here. They didn't, they wanted to have a kind of nonpartisan place uh, in the country where, you know, people could come and, and congregate and it wouldn't, uh, you know, they, uh, there's no uh, local government established at, at the, in the founding of, of D.C. And, uh, and and that's in the Constitution, as a matter of fact. So, you know, uh, when we talk about statehood, which we should get to because uh, it's timely, uh, the uh, the issue goes to a constitutional level Um which is which does present challenges for statehood for sure. Even though, you know, you and I and everybody else who care about DC and the people who live there are fervently in in favor of it. Um, so yeah, so uh, there's no local government. It's basically built as a place to um, for people to come. But then you know the the problem is that there are uh, local people who live there. And the city starts to grow and sort of gains a um, a reputation uh, coming from pre-colonial to the uh, or, or post-colonial to pre-Civil War era. Um, it kind of gains a, a reputation uh, in the nation. Uh, do, do you want to speak more uh, to that? Yeah, sure. But but before actually getting to that. I, I want to go back even further because this is something I thought was really interesting about this book and that kind of surprised me when I started reading it. You know, you you started talking about the founding of the country and the Constitution and establishing Washington as the capital. And that's kind of where I was expecting the book to begin, but it doesn't. It starts 
it, it starts with the original settlement of the land that became Virginia and became Maryland and mm. the the like clash between the the European settlers and the indigenous people who lived here and the wars that happened and just like the the totally basically elimination of that indigenous population. Mm. Um, the first chapter of the book um, really focuses on the people who settled around the Anacostia River, which was a, a tribe called the Nicostian tribe. And the river actually derives its name from that. It's the Latinized version of Nicostian Anacostia, mm. um, which at this point, I know there's some artifacts in the in the uh, Museum of the American Indian from that tribe. But apart from that, the name is kind of like the one remaining, um, like lasting thing that the city still has as a reference to that. But the the house that I live on now is is kind of where that tribe was originally located. And I, I don't know, I think it kind of speaks to the the depth that this book really uh, the depth and the care that the writers of this book really put into it is that it's really the whole story of this area, at least going back to when the European settlers arrived. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know. I just thought that was worth mentioning because it was something that, that really struck me and, and stood out to me when I first read the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> something we don't talk about often enough is, you know, the fact that we are all, standing now on you know stolen land um yeah. yeah and when it you know the the subtitle of the book is a history of race and democracy in the nation's capital and uh i mean especially given the title chocolate city and dc's like long history of, of being like a haven for black americans the majority of the book does focus on like the black white dichotomy as far as race but you know, that's not the only, um, that's not the only focus. Like it, it talks about the indigenous people who lived here it, in, in later centuries. It talks about, um, like DC's growing Latino population, um, Irish immigrants, like kind of the full spectrum. Um, but anyways, to, to answer, what was your initial question? I got kind of <laughs> well, well, DC, uh, so, so there's the founding era and then moving into moving out of, uh, the colonial era and into pre-civil war, it sort of gains a reputation nationally as sort of this hub as, especially as a, uh, you know, you were just alluding to it, you know, it's the first major city to be, um, majority black and, and in the pre-civil war era, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what the city looked like and, and, uh, what was going on here? What was, uh, yeah. What, what, what was being in DC like then? Yeah. Well, I can tell you from first and experience, DC was a very different place <laughs> pre-civil war. Um, <clears throat> no, but, um, uh, so, well, so you're right. DC eventually did become the, the first major city to be majority black in America, but that's much later. That's not until like the mid 20th century, mm. um, pre-civil war though. So you, you talked a little bit earlier about the, the establishment of Washington as the nation's capital. And that, that was like a big debate among, uh, 
I can't remember if it was the founders or if it was, uh, I can't remember exactly when that was established, but it was a big compromise because Southerners wanted it to be in the South. Northerners wanted it to be, I think, in Philadelphia. And it was established in Washington because Washington wasn't really like borderline at that point. It was Southern. Maryland was a Southern state. Virginia was definitely a Southern state. Um, I can't remember what the concession was, but there was some sort of like compromise where the capital was put in the South and then the Northerners got something. Uh, unfortunately, I can't remember, but anyways. In Hamilton, the way they explain it, and this could be, <laughs> I, I don't know all of my Revolutionary War histories as well as I should, but the compromise, I believe, is that the um, it, they federalize debt. So instead of states carrying debt independently, they have a nationalized uh, debt. So New York gets to keep the banks and um, and 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 goes on to they go on to form, you know, a nationalized Department of Treasury and all that stuff. And uh, and the capital gets to move to the south. And it's a compromise between Hamilton and Jefferson. I'm sure that that's a it's a, (laughs) you know, a spark notes version of what actually happened. But, yeah. That's that's the way it's characterized there. I think you're right, actually. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the details are probably not there in Hamilton, but I think broadly speaking, you're right. That's the that's what I was trying to think of, the concession that the Northerners got. Um, But so anyways, Washington becomes the nation's capital and um, like there is slave trade in Washington, like, you know, George yards. In Georgetown, on the National Mall, on yeah. the National Mall, there was there was um, slaves being traded. You know, feet from the Capitol. Yeah. Um, the Capitol was built by slaves. The White House was built by slaves. Um, but even at the same time, DC also became um, known as this like um, destination for freed slaves to seek out because even there was a slave trade. Um, freed slaves had more protection in Washington than anywhere else in the South and more opportunity. There was, there was a stronger like black population here than in a lot of other cities and just many more freed slaves here than in other cities throughout the South. Um, I just pulled up one of the, one of the tables in this book, which is like, it has census figures from all throughout history. And um, it's showing from as early as 1830, which, you know, is three decades before the Civil War, three and a half decades before the Emancipation Proclamation. And it, it breaks down the percentage of freed Blacks versus enslaved Blacks in D.C. And as early as 1830, it's 50-50. Mm. Um, and now, obviously, that's not not a great number, right? But it's there was way more opportunity for freed slaves in D.C. than than anywhere outside of the North. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is something that kind of repeats throughout history. But you saw a lot of a lot of freed slaves migrating to the city and coming to this area because there was kind of a promise of of a better life here. Um, and like a strong black contingent here that was willing to fight for freedom and fight for um, the freeing of all slaves, which happened in DC earlier than it did anywhere else in the country. Mm -hmm. There's this pattern 
and often it's, you know, sometimes it's for good, sometimes it's for bad, but there's this pattern because DC lacks so much autonomy of the government kind of like trying out things here. We're like this Petri dish. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that, one of the things that fits into that was, I, I don't remember the exact year, I think it was after the war started, but several years before the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves were freed in D.C. Um, And that was one of those things, you know, when Lincoln was in charge and Republicans, which are very different from the Republican Party we have now, but when Republicans were in charge during the Civil War, um, emancipation was, was like a big, a big, there was a big push for that to happen by a lot of radical Republicans and DC was one of the first places for that to actually occur. Yeah. One of the, the benefits and, and more recently the curses of DC, uh, not, not being able to govern itself is that, you know, Congress had the authority in, uh, in that era to be able to emancipate a large chunk of people before, um, it was able to happen on a national scale, um, and uh, and in the mid and and when things were still really heightened between um, free and uh, uh, um, and slave states. Um, okay, so then we get into the uh, okay. Wait, no, before we before we go through that, uh, 1812 uh, is sort of a, a, an interesting forgotten war that I don't really know much about, but uh, from a DC perspective, sort of interesting because the because uh, the capital gets invaded and 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 burned down. And uh, did they you spend imagine? Any- could you could you imagine, Frank, if the capital were to get invaded in 2021? So like the idea of like sort of like people like radical people just like marching into the hallowed halls of our nation and um, sort of like threatening peace and, and democracy in, in this country? No, I mean, that sounds crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, do they spend any time on, on the War of 1812 in this book? You know, I'm sure they do, but like <laughs> you, uh, the War of 1812 is a war that I also do not know a lot about. Yeah. And that also... So I mentioned that I had a long layoff from this book and where I stopped last year is kind of like in the years leading up to the civil war. So my memory pre that era is definitely a lot foggier. Um, Something, something I do remember and this, uh, I'm trying to remember what time frame this was in. I think it was between the war of 1812 and the civil war. So it's like an era when the black population in DC is becoming more and more free and recently freed slaves are looking for work and, and finding like new opportunities and building communities and building schools and all this stuff. And, um, the like poor working class white population of DC, grew very resentful because, um, I mean, slave labor, of of course, costs nothing. And then recently freed slaves were paid the lowest of the low. And these um, working class whites who were often like recent immigrants, I think Irish immigrants in particular, there was a lot of conflict and resentment between those two groups. And it 
I don't know. There were so many things reading this book where I was like, wow, that's crazy that this is like still a thing today, yeah. like hundreds of years later. And it just reinforced kind of what we already know, which is that it's, it's amazing how, um, people in power are able to pit folks who have very similar interests and very similar lives and socioeconomic status, how, how it's possible to pit us against one another based on something as simple as color. And it, it just really resonated and made me be like, wow, like, God damn, we, (laughs) this shit is still happening. It's still happening. Um, so yeah, that, that was something you can't tell you anything about the war of 1812. But <laughs> no, that, that's okay. Yeah. We, we got somewhere better with it. Wait, yeah. so, so, uh, post-war. Oh, oh, uh, one, one interesting DC fact that is, uh, sort of noteworthy, uh, to me. And I don't know if they spend any time on this in the book, but obviously Lincoln is assassinated and what? Uh, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> that's it. Maybe that's in chocolate city too. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> But um, John Wilkes Booth was from uh, PG County, uh, Maryland, uh, right outside of the city. And he stayed at a, um, so when he left the city, he was able to flee to a, um, like a tavern or a hotel or something run by a, a family named Mud. And um, the Muds, there was a, a woman who ran the tavern or hotel or whatever. And, um, and they were all apprehended as collaborators with Booth and very controversially at the time, um, they were all put to death, including, uh, this woman. And she was the first, uh, woman to be federally executed. Um, and it was in DC. So it was in the, um, that part that's like the military college, the, um, you know what I'm talking about? Kind of near, um, Haynes point, um, like Southwest area. Uh, I could pull it. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah. There's, there's like a little area down there here. I'll pull it up on the map. This is not good for our listeners at all, but um, (laughs) it's okay. uh, You can, you can share your screen with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, I I don't even know where Haynes point is. Is that like by the waterfront? um, Yeah. Here, let me, um, we can cut all this. So you got like, uh, Haynes Point is here. So this oh, is... Oh, it's where the golf course is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you got yeah. the... It's, it's a cool It's a cool spot. National War College. That's what it's called. So oh, this is... great name. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, back then they used to... And this is a better name. They called it the Department of War. Like, uh, mm. Department of Defense, not as good of a name. Like, I, they're, they're, they're lying. It's not just about defense. It's the Department of War. Like, own it. Oh. That that's what you're about. You know? I mean, Frank, uh, let's be frank. It's really, it's all these yeah. liberals and these social justice oh, warriors. They don't... <laughs> Here we go. Here we, Here go, we go again, Matt. Um, so yeah, that's that's some Civil War uh, DC trivia for you. Um, okay, so Reconstruction Era. I, I There was a, I, I think that I personally find the Reconstruction Era very fascinating. I think it's a very fascinating era to revisit for, uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, incredibly tragic uh, what uh, became of a lot of the progressive policies of that era. Um, What is happening in DC at that time? 
So, so during the Civil War, and this is repeated in the 20th century during, I think, both World War I and II, um, during the Civil War, there's this huge population boom in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes sense, right? The federal government's here. Um, there, there's just a lot of people converging because government is kind of like the one major industry in this area. So in wartime, there's jobs, there's opportunity, and there's just a lot going on. So the population of DC like explodes during the civil war. There's all kinds of like housing crises and, and crazy shit going on. Um, and then with the freeing of the slaves, that are the remaining slaves in DC, at least. Um, there are all these people who need jobs, who need to find new places to live, and just like major influx in the population happening. Um, Reconstruction era. So the Freedmen's Bureau was a big, a big, um, you know, part of that whole era and related to DC specifically. The Freedmen's Bureau, just for people who aren't familiar with it, was basically a bureau set up by the um, Johnson administration, the Andrew Johnson administration, uh, that was what well, a guy. it was during the Lincoln. Uh, oh, the Johnson. Yeah. President Andrew Johnson. We should get into that. He's a fucking piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> but somebody there was smart and kind and forward thinking and basically was setting up a federal institution to figure out what, uh, what's next, uh, for freed people. Now, um, we weren't trying to do a, a small government, you know, uh, picking, pick people up by their bootstrap sort of method. It was, it was a, it was a pretty progressive um, uh, institution. Uh, sorry, please keep going. I just wanted to put that out there for anyone who's not familiar. No, no, thank you. That's, that's important, um, important context. So a, a quick Google search actually confirms that it was indeed President Lincoln who initiated oh, really? the Freedmen's Bureau. Okay. Yeah, Johnson, Johnson would Johnson never fucking do that. Johnson was a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> That dude um, was drunk during his own inauguration. Was he? Well, he's yeah. probably not the he's probably not the only one. That's true. That's true. I would be I mean, too. If, Come on, man. Yeah. If you yeah. were getting inaugurated, you wouldn't have a Bloody yeah. Mary or three. Come on. Come, Come on. on. Yeah. Um, but anyways, so yeah, the Freedmen's Bureau established, uh, I think, well, even before the end of the war, kind of as the war is coming to a close. And I, if I remember correctly, the, the book kind of describes it as like the very first example of like a social welfare, uh, social welfare program in the U.S., like kind of this precursor to, you know, stuff that's so integral to our society today, like Social Security and Medicare and all this other stuff that comes later. Um, and uh, this is actually interesting. The head of the Freedmen's Bureau was someone named, his last name was Howard. He was a union general, Oliver, Oliver O. Howard, um, who is the namesake of Howard University hey. in D.C., which, um, Go which, which I believe the university was also a project of the Freedmen's Bureau, Um And Howard eventually served as president as well. Um, Howard served as the president of Howard University. Um, And the university was also the first historically black college uh, in the country as well. 
Um, so the Freedmen's Bureau did a, a lot of stuff. It did a lot. I, I know it was criticized a lot at the time for, you know, probably the same reasons yeah. <laughs> welfare programs Big are criticized now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but it, I mean, I mentioned at the top, like, uh, the origination of my neighborhood, the neighborhood I'm living in now used to be, um, land owned where, um, uh, I think it was farm. Yeah, it was farmland. It's called Barry farm because the man who owned it was named Barry and it was his farm, but you know, it was this land that was owned by wealthy landowners that was purchased by the government and then redistributed to recently freed slaves. Actually one, one funny little anecdote about that is the Barry, what I don't know what his first name was, John Barry, Steve Barry, let's call him Johnny Barry, Johnny Barry, um, you know, being a white man at the times, he did not want to sell his land to be a home to black people. So what the Bureau had to do was they purchased the land through an intermediary because he would not sell it directly to the Freedmen's Bureau. Wow. So some some shifty negotiation there some some clever politics wow that is um but anyways so yeah reconstruction era the the other interesting thing i remember from this book is that um post-civil war there is so prior to the civil war dc was kind of separated into different chunks like georgetown was its own city really with like its own yeah. yeah and this was true of Alexander. So like the main areas were like Georgetown, Alexandria, and then like the rest, like kind which, of what we think of as downtown DC. Which not to cut you off at all, because I want you to keep going. Cause I, I am fascinated with this era of DC, but just got to get it in there. So DC for anybody who's familiar kind of looks like a square, but there's like a, like a little at the bottom <laughs> left yeah corner it used to be a full diamond it used to be a full diamond but uh that area was reclaimed by virginia uh during the civil war and was held uh even after the civil war and and reconstituted as a part of virginia for uh I, I think bullshit reasons, but yes, Alexandria for, for our listeners in DC used to be a part of the district and uh, was, was, was forcibly uh, reclaimed back into the the hands of uh, Virginia. So um, fuck Virginia. I'm going <laughs> to fuck Virginia as always, but I'm going to actually push back a little bit because oh, okay. I, and again, this is, this is one of those things that I read months ago. So Take this with a grain of salt. Um, uh-huh. You know, I'm kind of working off a of memory here, but uh-huh. from how I remember it is that Alexandria actually chose or wanted to leave the district. Oh, that's because, right. Yeah. And it's because the, and I don't know what exactly the, the issue was because there was a slave trade in DC as well, but it wasn't, I don't know, Alexandria wanted more freedom in how they traded slaves. It had something to do yes. with with the slave trade and Alexandria uh, just wanting to do more of that or have fewer restrictions or it was something related to the like the slave economy that yes. caused the city of Alexandria to 
you know, and a precursor to the Civil War to basically secede from D.C. So it was called a, a retrocession. They, mm. they re uh, seceded for, or like, you know, that land was ceded to create DC and then they retroceded back to, uh, Virginia. You're absolutely right. It's the Alexandria retrocession of 1846. So mm. you're absolutely right. My history was a little off there, but, um, okay, great. E- so either way though, either way though, fuck Virginia. Fuck Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he, uh, he meaning me said as he was living in Virginia at the time. Uh, <laughs> so, um, okay. So let's get back to post-civil war reconstruction era. Um, and, um, I totally derailed us, so I apologize, but, uh, um, what no, else? Okay. Yeah, we're we're approaching. So we're 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 living in a, a sort of progressive time with um, the Freedmen's Bureau reconstituting some land, uh, redistributing the, that back to formerly enslaved people, and then what happens? So there's this really interesting era right after. Um, the Civil War ends where, so, so like we were saying prior to the Civil War, what we know is the District of Columbia was divided into different cities. There was Georgetown, there was Washington, there was, you know, until they left, there was Alexandria. And after the Civil War, you see the passage of, I'm pulling it up right now so that I don't uh, misspeak, but... This is great. This is the podcast where two guys Google history. Google stuff, right? (laughs) You can listen to people Google stuff. So it was called the Organic Act of 1871. And what it did was it basically repealed the city charters of Georgetown and Washington and formed Ah. the District of Columbia. Ah, okay. And when they did that, it created, you know, created a new government for D.C. And... Uh, basically we had this like brief experience with self-governance. Um, and later that decade, so there's this brief period of self-governance. I I mentioned earlier how there was this huge population influx, uh, in the years leading up to this. And after the war, DC is kind of in shambles. Like there's, there's no infrastructure. There's, there's still like dirt roads and stuff because the population grew so fast that the city, isn't really prepared to, to hold all of these people. So um, in the few years that we are able to govern ourselves, the city basically goes bankrupt because they're trying, and it's not the first time it'll happen because uh, the city's just trying to catch up and build houses and build roads and, and, you know, become a place that is livable for all these people. Um, so and, and for, sorry, not to cut you yeah, off again, I feel like sure. I've done this a number of times, but, no, no, no. but just for people who li- don't live in DC, this is still true today. Congress has to approve DC's budget so that the United States Congress has to pass the budget of, so DC eventually, you know, today does have a mayor and city council and all that stuff, but, but unlike other states who have the authority to execute their own budgets and whatever, Washington, D.C.'s budget still has to be approved by the United States Congress, which means that Idaho and Montana have a say in how D.C. uh, taxes, how D.C. enforces its laws, how it does speeding tickets, all that stuff. So anyway, and this is this was true in that era as well. 
Right, right. And um, during this this brief era, so DC actually actually at one point had a governor. Our governor was um, Alexander Roby Shepard for these few years in the 1870s. And we had a, a council as well. So during this time, they approve all of these big municipal projects to modernize the city and, and kind of bring it up to speed with the, the growth in population. But like I said, the city goes bankrupt, right? So as, as they have a number of times throughout history, Congress looks at this and says, well, DC can't handle it. DC can't govern themselves. So in 1874, they basically, they cancel this. They say no more governor, no more council. And the way DC is going to be run now and the way it gets run for about the next hundred years is that Congress appoints three commissioners who are in charge of the city. Uh, so basically political appointees become the um, become in charge of the District of Columbia starting in, I think, 1874. What could possibly go wrong? <sighs> what could possibly go wrong? So what does go wrong? <laughs> Well, what does go wrong? Um, I mean, what goes wrong is that the capital of the United States, which is the premier democracy in the entire world, is not a democratic city. Um, and still is to this day. Either. Still is to this day. It's more democratic we, than it was, but yes. Exactly. It is more democratic. Small democratic. I'm not, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much big D democratic, but small D democratic. We have a, a long way to go. Um, but yeah, so so like I said, there's this brief kind of flirtation with self-governance, but Congress doesn't let it fly for very long. Um, and, and this is something the book gets into a lot, too, is that, um, you know, as we talked about before, D.C., um, even prior to emancipation has a large population of, um, of, uh, free black people. It has a large population, a large black population just in general. And there's, um, it's kind of hard to ignore like the, the racial undertones of all of this. Like mm -hmm. there was a sense that Congress was afraid of what a city with such a strong black population would do if it governed itself. And that that kind of is kind of like undergirding this constant sense of, well, DC can't handle itself. DC shouldn't be able to govern itself. Um, and I, I think that that's something we see today as well. When you see our, black mayor being questioned by Congress about, well, the founders didn't intend for this and the founders didn't intend for that. And the founders didn't intend for a black woman to vote or be a free person, much less be the mayor of a city. So, right. um, so yeah, so the, the next hundred years are, are tough for DC. Um, I'm trying to think like, why don't we jump forward a little bit to, like the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, Do they what cover, I remember? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Th there was a lot of, you know, with Congress in charge during the late 1800s, there's, oh, it's coming back to me now. So during the late 1800s, early 20th century, that's kind of when DC becomes, in some ways, the DC we know today, the monuments, the 
uh, National Mall, like there was this big push to beautify the city and to make it this like beautiful symbol of American democracy Roman again. architecture. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which again, ironic because it's this symbol of democracy without actually being democratic itself. Right. right. Um, so, you know, with Congress in charge, that's kind of the focus. The focus isn't lifting people out of poverty or sustainable housing or education or anything. It's how can we make this city bright and shiny so that it, you know, slap a coat of paint on it, um, basically. And, and not to, not to like undersell those things. Like the, the city is those monuments matter. Like, and I think again, with the, the Capitol riot that we witnessed just a couple months ago, like those things are meaningful, not just yeah. to us in the district or even just us in the U S but to the world, like yep. as symbols of democracy, but still the, the, the citizens who live here were kind of shunted off to the side so that the federal government could advance kind of their interests in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, again, something we see happen repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so like moving forward into the, the 20th century, um, as with the civil war, world war one and two, you see a lot of like big influx in the population of DC, um, in world war one, you see, um, um, black folks fighting in the war, um, even though they're being denied equal voting rights, um, black women at that point in time can't vote at all. Um, um, let's see, I'm trying to, trying to recall some of the stuff from that era. Do they, do they talk through, so one of the things I know, this is post-World War II era, and probably a little bit during, and maybe even a little bit before, but I know that, well, one, I know that there was, I've seen uh, historical images of uh, shanty towns in Southwest DC, like right outside of the Capitol. Um, And the Congress like forcibly removes and destroys homes to beautify the city. So that's, that's one, another shameful part of our history. And two, um, the great migration and white flight in the city um, in, in the post-World War II era um, with um, uh, uh, <laughs> changing demographics in certain parts of the city. So um, sort of two different threads that we can uh, untangle there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, so prior to the World Wars, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about uh, like the, the size of DC's black population and this whole like chocolate city moniker that DC becomes famous for in the decades leading up to the wars, that was kind of at a, is ebb when it's lower? Yeah. Okay. I that think was, so. <laughs> like the ebb and flow. Yeah. Yeah. When it's that ebbing. Was, yeah. I'm going to Google so, ebb. <laughs> Great stuff, right? Um, yeah, abate, subside, wane. Yeah, okay. Yeah, great, great. Yeah. So, <laughs> so early in the 20th century, uh, the black population's at an ebb. It's lower. I think the city's probably like 70% white at that point, um, which is probably about as high as it gets at any point in history. Um, but again, as with the Civil War, there's this big influx 
um, during the World Wars and post-World War II, which is kind of the, the era you were alluding to, that's when um, we kind of start to see like the chocolate city that we that we grew up hearing about and learning about. Um, you mentioned urban renewal in Southwest. That's something that the book talks about um, kind of at length. Um, because I think that was in the fifties, I want to say. Um, and Southwest DC was, I believe a primarily black neighborhood. Um, and I, I think this was during like the era of highway construction. And as, as you know, there's a major highway that runs directly through Southwest. All of these homes in Southwest were basically demolished and all of these people were displaced in the name of, as you said, urban renewal and. And no homes found for them. No, you know, this is no, uh, you know, there's no, okay, we're going to move you out of this home, but we're going to put you over here. None of that. No, none of that at all. Um, And I mean, Southwest is probably the biggest example because it's a whole chunk of the city that just gets wiped out. And I mean, to, to this day, Southwest is, I, it's funny. There's, there's pictures in the book and Southwest looks more like a neighborhood like Petworth or like, like a neighborhood with like row houses and kind of what we think of as DC neighborhoods. And nowadays Southwest isn't like that at all. It's high rises. And, um, you know, there's this enormous waterfront there now. Um, so it, it's just one of the many examples of of people getting displaced and kind of driven out of their homes. Um, well, I'm looking at um, sort of continuing the march of time. So I'm looking at DC census statistics right now that I pulled up before the show. I didn't Google these during the show. I Googled these before the show doing my homework. So 1950, the total district population. uh, So the black population in the district is 35% in 1950. By 1960, it's 53.9%. By 1970, it's 71%. By 80, it's 70%. So you know, this, the city is changing and the city changes really fast. And at the same time, obviously, we're going through uh, the civil rights era and um, and uh, the civil rights, the movement at large, um, including all of the um, uh, peaceful protest and the, the violence that accompanied that. Um, and um, and at the same time, D.C. is also given home rule a, a little bit. It's like the the littlest <laughs> kind of, you know, door opening uh, to to self-governance. So uh, anything you want to talk through uh, on that, I'd, I'd love to hear what the book. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, you mentioned a few minutes ago, white flight, um, which is for anyone who hasn't heard the term before, it's this. Um, this thing that happens post-World War II in the, like the 50s and 60s uh, in D.C. and also all around the country, which is white people kind of fleeing the cities for the suburbs. Um, you know, there's this like idyllic 50s suburban life, like the American dream, you know, two cars out front, kids in the yard. and White picket fence. White picket fence. And um I mean, one of the reasons for that is the cities in D.C. in particular are getting blacker, like and 
white residents. Uh, there was a lot of discomfort. There was a lot of um, redlining. Redlining. The book talks a lot about these. Um, oh, what's the word? These like community charters that residents come up with where they basically decide who can and can't move into a certain neighborhood. And there's all these court cases where eventually these, these kinds of things get struck down. But for many years, um, this kind of like forced segregation was kind of upheld by the law. And you see a lot of that change during the sixties and the civil rights era. But, you know, you just mentioned the census statistics. It's funny. I was looking at the exact same thing. Oh, that's funny. There's this, it shifts so quickly and so rapidly. Um, One of the things I read in the book related to those stats in particular that really surprised me is that, uh, so you mentioned ward seven and ward eight at the top, which are, Uh, Ward 8, I know, is 92% Black in the present day. Ward 7, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing it's similar. Um, Those those neighborhoods, which are, for anyone who doesn't know D.C., those are east of the Anacostia River, which I know I, growing up, I was, was told that, like, that's the black oh, side don't of town. go over there, you know, yeah, it's dangerous yeah, over there. Right. It's, yeah. One of the things I learned Which, of course, is bullshit. We should also say that's uh, bullshit. And, yeah, sure, there, mean, there are people who are struggling over there and that sort of thing. But there are decent people there as well who are just living their lives, taking their kids to school, working at a grocery store, you know. Um, I mean, that's where that's where I'm living right now. That's what yeah. you mentioned working in schools before. That's where the elementary school you worked is. Um, but something I learned about these neighborhoods that really surprised me is that prior to white flight, these neighborhoods were majority white. And I had never known that before. Anacostia, yeah. there were like protests against busing in the fifties, which is kind of crazy to imagine now, but the the demographics of the city just changed so fast and so extremely in the like fifties, sixties and seventies. Well, and then the, the real um, uh, turning point, I think in, in the nation's perception of DC, one of the many turning points, but but I, I think that the reverberations of this were felt even into our lifetimes, and we're sort of just coming out of this now, is the 1968 riots. The riots so yeah. after uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, there were huge riots in D.C., and huge mm-hmm. chunks of the city, uh, H street, um, you know, uh, busy, uh, you know, uh, commercial areas were, you know, there were, there were people who were really angry and, and there was looting and there was protesting and the city, um, really like even like i was saying even into our lifetimes even as 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 recently as 10 years ago when you drive down 8th street i mean there were still buildings that were were hollowed out from that time and i think that that made such a cultural impact in the way that people perceive dc and um you know i remember you were kind of alluding to like growing up people being like oh dc and stuff like that like dc kind of had a bad reputation or it was seen as this like dangerous place. And I think that certainly shaped um, a lot of people's perception. Um, And I should also say that this is, you know, a very, that was a very white perception of, uh, of DC and, Mm -hmm. uh, and safety. And um, 
yeah. So in this book, what do they what do they talk about in in uh, in relation to 1968 and and the fallout after that? Um, I mean, it's it's you know, it's like everything. It's it's all in this kind of like continuum of history. Like it's hard to talk about the riots without talking about the 60s leading up to it and and the the whole civil rights movement and i mean home rule wasn't granted until i think 73 it's definitely in the 70s um so dc still is is governed by these federally appointed commissioners still doesn't have really any semblance of self-governance um, but there's this big push, kind of like we're seeing a big push now for D.C. statehood among residents to to um, obtain home rule and to obtain the right to to vote in presidential elections. D.C. residents couldn't vote in presidential elections until uh, I think it was before home rule was enacted. But but during the civil rights era, they, um, we had to pass a, con- a constitutional amendment, the 23rd Amendment, to get. Uh, the ability for DC residents to vote for president. It's insane. It's in our parents' lifetime that that happened. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So, um, and it, it, you know, it's during this era that, that a gentleman by the name of Marion Barry kind of gains recognition because he was, you know, before he was a politician because politicians in DC didn't exist at that time because, you know, again, there was no, DC government. Um, but anyways, he, he kind of came up as like a big civil rights activist and, um, was like a, a big player in that arena during that time. But anyways, as, as far as the riots themselves, um, I mean, at, at that point we're talking 68, uh, the district again was the only major city in the country that was majority black. Um, and when news of the assassination came, I mean, it started that night. Um, and you mentioned H Street, U Street. These were like the major strips of like um, black businesses. U Street was famously referred to as Black Broadway because there were all these jazz clubs and um, a lot of famous musicians are associated with that era. It's really close to Howard University. Um, and these neighborhoods and these businesses are just like gutted, like looted, arson. There's clashes between police and citizens. Um, one one thing I, I pulled up a few minutes ago is that at this time, you know, even though the um, city is 60, 70 percent black, the police force during the riots is 80 percent white. Mm. Um Mm. which, you know, how does that happen? Um, And there's all this tension, again, kind of like we see today, all of this tension between residents and police, and all of this is kind of boiling over during this weekend of riots. Um, Yeah. So we get into... um, the seventies and we get, we finally get home rule and there's actually a movement in the seventies to, and I'm not sure how, how uh, deep the book goes into this. I got to read this fucking book, but uh, (laughs) so um, 
we, there's there's a movement in the 70s for DC statehood and it actually gets um, ratified by like 20 some odd states um, to for there to be a constitutional amendment, but it falls short. It's like short by like three states or something like that. Something like it frustratingly close. Um, so DC is still not a state, which means it does not have the authority to, you know, run itself uh, to, to have uh, a seat at the table at the federal government, even though it is the seat of the federal government. Uh, so it's the city of contradictions, but um, culturally we haven't really spent a lot of time on this, but like culturally there's a lot going on in DC. You know, you, you reference black Broadway. Um, there's a, there's a burgeoning um, music scene, uh, in the area, uh, music has always been a, a part of uh, DC's uh, soul, at least in the in the 20th century. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to to the culture and you know what's happening in the city in the in the 70s and and you know into the modern era? I wanna I wanna um, quickly before we get to that one yeah. other quick thing about the riots because this is something that I remember really stood out to me. And again, this is happening in the decades following urban renewal and these kind of neighborhoods getting gutted out. Um, something the book talks about is kind of the difference of opinion among, among various residents about the riots. Some people felt like this is self-destructive. We're destroying our own businesses, our own property. While others felt like, you know, I'm sure you've probably heard the, the phrase before riots are the voice of the unheard. Like, yeah people were pushed to this point where there was no other way to be heard. And one of the things I, that stood out to me in the book is, and this, I'm going to quote from it here, uh, nearly half of black Washingtonians in one survey believed that the riots had served a quote, useful purpose. Um, Calvin Rolark, the black publisher of the Washington Informer, called them a consumer's rebellion against businesses that mm. had victimized ghetto residents. Mm. And then this is this is what stood out to me. Many black residents joked that the riots offered, quote, instant urban renewal, destroying, <laughs> destroying predatory businesses and dilapidated housing. Because yeah. um, another thing that the book mentioned about the riots is that black business owners put signs out on their businesses stating who they were. There was actually a slogan for it. I can't remember what it was. Um, but the rioters were targeting businesses that were known for discrimination and predatory habits. And one of the things that I remember is um, as a kid growing up, both of my parents worked at Giant. Which yes, is a grocery I, store. I was just about to bring this up. Yes. And Safeway, which is a competitor in the area, had this reputation for being really terrible to black mm -hmm. residents. And I, again, can't remember exactly what, but having discriminatory practices. And um, during the riots, Safeways took a real hit while. Uh, civil rights groups actually directed residents to Giant to protect them from the rioters. So way to go, Giant. Hometown way to go, Giant. Giant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to John and Brenda. Um, um, but so anyways, you you mentioned the 70s and like yeah, the rise yeah. of Go-Go. And, um, and again, I, I sh probably should have given this disclaimer up front. I'm speaking to all of this as a white guy who grew yeah. up in suburban Maryland, I've lived in DC yes. for more than a decade and I grew up in the area, but I'm not from DC and I'm 
I'm speaking all of this, not from firsthand experience, of course. And, and yes, uh, me too. And also, uh, and that's definitely worth uh, adding as context to the conversation. And I think, you know, in the future, I would love to have a conversation with people uh, with, with folks who, you know, are born and raised from the city, you know, uh, people who, uh, you know, came up during this era. I would love to explore that more. Um, with you and, and, you know, and, and historians and stuff, but, you know, we are, we are people who, uh, care a lot about this too. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I do, I do think it's, um, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're celebrating, uh, and honoring that and, and, uh, not trying to, uh, co-opt or, uh, or, or claim it as our own. I, I think that that's an important disclaimer to put out there. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, um, you know, speaking about the 70s, home rule is finally granted in 73, I believe. Um, Huge deal for D.C. We get a mayor, we get a city council. These are things that D.C. residents vote on. We decide who runs the city for the first time in 100 years. Um, And this is kind of... um, I guess it's kind of like this, this culmination and this really big era of like pride of DC pride. And you see GoGo come out of that and GoGo is, that's kind of like our one major cultural export. Like that's something that originated in DC that is ours that started here. It is the signature sound of DC. You know, there's there's great what's jazz. The, what's the go-go beat? How does it go? How does it go for people who haven't oh, heard it? Oh man, I can't do it. It's the it's th- um, for me. It's like it's it's got this like syncopated rhythm. It's very percussion heavy. It I mean the beat the beat is is kind of a core thing. It's, it's music that's built out from the percussion. I mean, a lot of times it has horns. Um, there's a lot of call and response in Go-Go. It's, I think one of the big reasons Go-Go never took off nationally is because in like recorded form, it's just not really the same. It's like very much a form of music that's made for live consumption. Like, mm-hmm like interaction with the crowd, uh, call and response, like I said, and it's, it's just one of those things you kind of like feel in your, in your gut. Um, You still hear it on the streets, you know, today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the 70s are this, this like really, um, like I said, time of DC pride, um, go-go's rising up and toward the end of the 70s, you see, uh, old, our old friend Marion Barry get elected. Mm-hmm. He's he's the mayor for last few years of the seventies, uh, and then all through the eighties, he's elected. I think to three terms in his first stint as mayor. Um, he later gets elected a fourth time in the nineties. Um, so the, yeah, the seventies I, I feel like are kind of like in some ways like the peak of 
of DC in a lot of ways. In the eighties, things get a lot rougher. Yeah. The, the crack epidemic is a big part of that. Uh, the city again has major problems with its finances um, and like violence. bankruptcy scares, violence. Yeah. The, the violent crime goes up, goes way up in DC. This is another example of, again, DC being kind of used as a prop, but um, you know, during the Reagan era, there's all this, like tough on crime rhetoric going on and and dc is kind of this like example that gets used a lot and i mean it's it's not it's based in fact like violent crime goes way up in dc during this time um but again it's like these this persistent issue of housing and education and you know even after the civil rights era you see these disparities between, you know, there isn't, there isn't segregation, but there is like neighborhoods are still segregated. Um, Again, white flight being a big part of that, but you see, and again, you could speak to this certainly better than me, but you see these huge disparities between quote unquote black schools and quote unquote white schools. Yeah. Um, And that obviously is still, even today is an issue. Yeah. Um, well, and so, DC yeah. was also one of the few cities in America, and this was in recently, this was in the last decade. DC was a city that was in some ways dying from 2000 to 2010. The population decreased. It was the one yeah. of the only cities in America where the population decreased in the city. So people were, so DC really did have a, a problem. Um, and, and, and there are, self-inflicted problems and then there are problems that are exacerbated by the fact that we don't have our own government you know we you know people uh, republican lawmakers can criticize you know um, violent crime all they want but also when dc tried to pass a law um uh you know outlawing hand handguns um that went all the way to the supreme court and um was overturned so um so we don't really have the authority to to enact our own laws, and, and like in an, in um, any other state uh, in the country. Which is funny because, of course, anytime something goes wrong here, you know, the residents are to blame. Like, right. what, what's the what's the last time you heard someone in Congress take responsibility for something that happened? Well, a, as recently as January sixth, Matt, I was I was <laughs> proud and furious also too that the the capital police force and there's a lot that went into that and i'm not um speaking ill of the people who really were trying to protect the capital but the the metropolitan police department the dc police had to be the people to bail them out yeah and and for people who don't know that the capital police has as big of a police force as the entire district of columbia and oh, wow i didn't know that that's yeah, crazy yeah and uh and and they weren't they and dc had to be the and 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 and, it, and the reason why that's kind of a fraught thing is because of this relationship with congress and because congress is constantly stepping on the toes of of local self-governance and and but dc has to be the the community to to bail out you know uh lawmakers and and you know i think that they should have i think it's good that they did but it is um it is frustrating and 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 
disturbing and um, shameful um, that 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 is that has happened and continues yeah. to happen today. Yeah, um, I want to I want to quickly catch us up to the the present because yes. we're kind of there anyways, and I yes. know we've been we've been going on for a little while, so I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to wear the listeners out. Let's but, talk about um, the 2010s. Where are we at now? Well, so uh, like you were saying, there's DC loses a lot of population at the end of the 20th century. Um, it's it's a rough time for the city. Um, I know when we were growing up in Maryland, there was definitely, and again, this has a lot to do with race, but there was definitely a perception of DC as like a dangerous place, as not a good place to be. The city's still feeling the effects of these riots years later. Um, and, you know, Marion Barry, who is held up for so many years as this like beacon of hope and this kind of like singular figure in DC politics, he has this major fall from grace in the early 90s. He's still able to get elected mayor again, but he's um, and serve as a city council member till until his death. And serve as a city council mm-hmm. member, yeah. Um, but he's definitely, um, I guess, like politically weakened and has been torn down somewhat. He's the subject of multiple investigations, and and DC's just kind of seen as sort of a mess. Um, in the 2010s, or even leading up to the 2010s, there starts to be. Um, more investment in DC. U Street starts to get rebuilt. Uh, this is a really big thing. And U Street today is this like bustling center of business and these new residencies and, and all of this stuff. The same thing happens to H Street a few Columbia years Heights. later, Columbia Heights. Um, and of course, the election of Barack Obama in 2008. Um, so there's this. DC for the last, you know, it's 2021, probably 10 or 15 years now, um, has kind of been growing again. It's become uh, a tourist destination again. The population now has started to grow again, um, back up from its ebb. Uh, hey, oh. <laughs> back in the back in like the 90s, early 2000s, um, and um, there's. It feels like a good time to be in DC again. Like it feels uh, more hopeful. There's this, like we've mentioned a couple times, there's this really big push for statehood right now, which has happened before, but it's gotten further than it ever has before. It's passed the House of Representatives, which had never happened before. Uh, before, I guess that was last year that that happened. Um, so yeah, it's a good time. Good time to be in DC. Um, what? Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, you the 2010s. Um, that's kind of the period you were living in DC. What? Uh, I guess what thoughts do you have? I think it was a period of like tremendous change, and I, I think that um, in terms of national politics, you're right. It's a very hopeful time. I, you know, I'm unfortunately kind of a glass half empty on whether it all actually happen. Um, because I, I think that, um, I think that power wise, I, I think it would be very difficult, uh, to get the Republicans to, um, essentially allow two more, um, Democratic senators to come in, but I'm sort of digressing a little bit. The 2010s were a huge period of renewal in the city. I think we are also, I think the, 
biggest issue that the city faces right now is gentrification and how um, urban renewal and development uh, restores neighborhoods, but also on the other hand, pushes people out. You know, I was, I was telling Chelsea uh, when we were up recently that um, we, um, you know, t- taking somebody's house, you know, even if it's an abandoned house and then, you know, re- revamping it and making it into, you know, a three floor condo with a pop-up and a roof deck and all that stuff is like, on the one hand, it's good because it was an abandoned thing that was burned out and whatever. And now people can live there and it's nice and whatever. On the other hand, that was, that was somebody's house and, you know, somebody grew up there and somebody fell in love there and somebody, you know, had the hardest day of their life there. And, you know, it was, it was a place where a family lives. So, um, it's a, uh, I'd say it's complicated from that, um, perspective, like in terms of development and, um, particularly because there are there is a lot of money coming from outside the city to develop these kind of high-rise condos and stuff that can sit unoccupied for forever and there's not a lot of low-income units in there and they'll just wait until people are willing to to pay the price and so then and then that has like an effect on um property taxes and and home values and stuff and um I think weirdly, um, I think like housing is like the biggest issue in DC and, and, and to your point about like Berry farms and stuff and, and the history there is kind of like a through line of all of this, you know, from Berry farms and the Freedmen's Bureau all the way up through, uh, white flight up till the present. And, um, I don't think we figured it out by a long shot. And I think, and I'm hopeful, you know, I think that there are people who really care. Um, and I think that there are people who really want to make the city a, a better place. I think people love, I think people from DC have like a, a lot of pride uh, to be from DC and, um, and a lot of people's hearts are in the right places, but I think that there are, there are big challenges there. And um and um, I'm ho- I'm really excited that uh, DC statehood is is uh, like a part of the national debate, and I think all these pro democracy uh, measures, like giving DC and Puerto Rico statehood, are are long overdue. Um, and um, even though I'm a glass kind of half empty, I'm I'm I I, I want to be wrong on this. So uh, yeah, you're, you're yeah. sounding a little half full right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want you know I want to end things on a on a positive note, and plus it's like it's we should uh, always strive towards uh, what we want in the world, you know, as opposed yeah. to focusing on the bitter reality of it. Be the change. That's right. Be the That's change. right. Um, just a, a couple of other quick things to kind of wrap, put mm-hmm. a bow on things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talked about kind of the revitalization of the city in the past 10, 20 years. I think it's important to also point out that this has coincided with uh, you know, the moniker Chocolate City came, it came originally from the funk band Parliament. And again, because DC was the first major city to be majority black, that is no longer the case. And yeah. um, let's say I've got it right here. In 2000, the city was still 60% black. It kind of hovered between 60 and 75% for like the second half of the 20th century that dropped to 50% in 2010. And as of today, it's in the forties, it is no longer the majority. It's 
if you combine black and brown populations, it is still the majority, but black population is, I think, around 43, 44%. Um, so again, talking about gentrification, talking about urban renewal, the city is economically doing better than it's been doing. There, uh, the median income, I'm sure, has skyrocketed. You know, these other ways we measure the health of a city, but um, it's come at a cost. Um, and and that's that's something I wanted to address directly too, because again, talking about gentrification, I you know I we've talked a couple times about how I just moved into a new home. I moved into a brand new townhome in Berry Farm, a neighborhood that clearly has deep rooted history in being a black neighborhood. I live in Ward Eight, which, as you said before, is ninety two percent black. I, I mean, I am a part of gentrifying the neighborhood that I just moved into. And that's something that, you know, it, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. It's honestly, it's something that uh, my wife and I were looking for a home in D.C. for several months. We, we love living here. We wanted to find a home in D.C. We looked at stuff on both sides of the river. But when we started looking at neighborhoods in this area, I don't think we, we really seriously considered um, kind of what that meant and what our responsibility was for that. And honestly, I feel, uh, it feels really complicated. I feel a lot of, of guilt, honestly, over, over the decision that we made. And I've been reflecting a lot lately on just how to address that and kind of, you know, we, we made an offer on a house. It was accepted. We're here now. Um, and, and that's what it is. We're here. And there's kind of not, there's no going back from that. There, there are empty lots on my street that I know are going to get developed into new homes soon. I saw a house this afternoon getting demolished on my street. Mm -hmm. It was a vacant house that was getting mm -hmm. torn down. Um, so I, I've been thinking a lot about going forward. What, what can I do to support this community, to learn about this community, to be a responsible member of this city and the community that I'm living in now. And you mentioned housing and that is, and again, I just moved into an expensive new town home that I'm sure displaced someone who lived in this neighborhood for a long time. Um, but housing has been an, an issue in D.C. forever. It's, again, one of the big through lines of this book that we've been talking about. Um, and I think somewhere to start is kind of what I can do in that fight for affordable housing. I don't know what that is yet. Um, I actually just this week have been emailing with with my new council member to try and just get the lay of the land a little bit. Like, you know, I... I don't want to like jump directly into things and have this big white savior complex, but I also want to, like I said, be a part of this community and, and help where I can. So I'm hoping to learn more about that. And I think the fight for equitable and affordable housing in the city is a really important one. And one that's, um, you know, as we're, as we're looking for, steps moving forward in how to make DC a better place. I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and, um, 
quick plug for for an organization that I think does amazing work um, in this area is uh, Bread for the City. Uh, there are a lot of awesome nonprofits in DC, but Bread for the City is definitely one that's um, near and dear to my heart. Who just opened a, a facility on Good Hope Ro- Road uh, down there, mm-hmm. and uh, they provide wraparound services. They do. Um, health uh they do food pantry they do housing they do wellness checks they do community services they're just they're fantastic and i can't say enough uh nice things about them so there's uh, also a um in my neighborhood just a block away there's a martha's table which i know does similar work yeah another great organization so um if you're out there listening and this is something you care about, those are two organizations that maybe you want to check out and support uh, in some way, uh, shape or form. Um, and yeah, and I know you've been putting some additional thought into this idea of being a good neighbor. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if you want to uh, uh, foreshadow or tease um, any, any writing that you may have on the subject uh, coming out. Well, sure. As well, as your listeners probably already know, you you Frank have this podcast, but you you also have a website, thefrankpage.com, uh, which takes a frank look at the many subjects, <laughs> the many subjects we've been talking on this podcast about policy, right. politics. Um, we didn't get much to sports and pop culture this time around, I, but I'm sure we will. I've literally on all the things that I've written and the one episode I podcasted about never had anything had to do with sports or pop culture. So we really need to step up that um, effort. We're going to, we're going to do, I wanted to, to come around to sports at the end of this, yeah, but I know. We're, we're probably at like 90 minutes. So we really yeah, need to wrap it up. We really do. But, but, um, yeah. but anyways, on, on the Frank page, uh, I, I'm a regular contributor. I've written about a half a dozen pieces on a variety of subjects and I, I have something that I'm hoping to release pretty soon in the next week or two, maybe um, that is it's about exactly what I was just talking about a moment ago about uh, gentrification, the role that I play in that, the role that um, just kind of where I see myself as a white guy in D.C. who moved here in 2010, like during that population change that we were talking about and grappling with that. And I don't know, just, just how to balance, um, you know, I've been reflecting a lot, but reflection is an action. So it's important to, um, I think be responsible for our own actions. And, um, like I said, I I don't want to, dive into things without knowing what I'm talking about and, um, and be that like white savior stereotype. But I also don't want to sit on my hands and just think about things my whole life either. So I'm, yeah. I'm trying to find that balance between reflection and action. And I'm, uh, that's, that's really what the piece is about. Well, it's an excellent piece of writing and you all should definitely uh, check it out when that goes up. Um, Matt, in closing, my last question for you before I read us out is uh, what do you love about DC? This is a love letter to DC. What do you love about DC? (sighs) What 
do I love about DC? I'm putting um, you on the spot. I apologize. Uh, that's all right. If I if I can't answer this question, then the <laughs> the past hour and a half is all <laughs> bullshit, right? Yeah, that's right. What do I love about DC? Um, I love Rock Creek Park. I love Chinatown. I love um, going to a game in that's Park. I love. Uh, I, this team, man, this, this fucking football team, but I love RFK stadium. I, I used to go there as a kid with my grandparents and I, I still remember it. I love, um, I love going to see the monuments, especially at night. Uh, I really love the FDR Memorial, the world war two Memorial mm. is my favorite. I do not love cherry blossom season because it gets too crowded <laughs> and it's, it's never as good as the Especially hype. Especially during COVID. What the fuck are people doing? It's insane. <laughs> it's fucking insane. But anyway, really go ahead. Yeah. Um, I really love the Arboretum. I love the um, Anacostia Water Gardens. They're beautiful. I love the Riverwalk at Anacostia. Um, I love how green this city is. I think a lot of people don't realize that because it's famous for marble and monuments, mm -hmm. but it's a very open green city and it's got a lot of flaws and it's not perfect, but you know, it's March right now and there's nothing like DC in the springtime. Amen. All right. Uh, that will bring our conversation to an ebb. Um, uh, Matt, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for joining me. Thank uh, you. Everybody, please check out his writing on the Frank page where he is a regular contributor. Uh, thank you all so much for joining me for this episode of Let's Be Frank. Uh, this episode was recorded on March 24th, 2021. Our theme music is by the inimitable Aaron Blyden. My name is Frank Severich, and you can find every episode of, of Let's Be Frank on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. If you like what you've heard, leave a rating and review, like, and subscribe. Also check out frankpage.com. I wish I had some sort of pithy and clever catchphrase to say at an end of an episode. So maybe that's a good listener challenge. Uh, send me suggestions for a pithy and clever catchphrase to sign off the show. In the meantime, have a great day and keep being frank. Bye.